Welcome to Liquor and Liqueur Connoisseur, where I drink, discuss, and discover the world of distilled spirits. I'm your host, Matt Burchard. This is episode 117, and I'm drinking Four Roses Bourbon, Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. With each episode of Liquor and Liqueur Connoisseur, you should expect that I'll be well-researched and educational, also entertaining and consistent in my reviews. I chose to feature Four Roses on this episode because it's a famous brand that's gone through a few owners, well-respected at first, then falling down market to a bottom-shelf staple before rising back up to at least mid-shelf, if not top-shelf, for some expressions. The bottle I have for the tasting is Four Roses Bourbon, Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. It's a standard 750 milliliter bottle. It is 40% alcohol by volume, making it 80 proof, and it retails at about $25. The bottle is bespoke glass, and that's expected for a brand of this volume, though it looks very much like a spirits bottle. It's clear glass, mostly cylindrical, but there is a slightly flared foot whose outside edge matches the width of the shoulder of the bottle. On the slope of the shoulder, the Four Roses logo is embossed, Then there's a slightly bulbous neck that allows for easy carrying in one hand, and the real cork stopper attached to a wooden top is visible through clear shrink wrap at the top. The front label is cleverly aligned below a slight depression at the shoulder below the embossed logo. The paper label is simple, an even light brown background with straight edges yet jagged top and bottom as if it were torn. The Four Roses word type logo is at the top. The Four Roses, an actual grouping of four red roses in full bloom with a single green leaf at each corner, is below. Then the word bourbon, a line and smaller text that reads, Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. In a dark brown band, the signature of Brent Elliott, master distiller, is shown. Final thing on the front label is volume and proof information. Text and rose petals on the front label have a slightly raised gloss coating to them. Back label is simple, in the same color palette as the front label. And beyond the government warning and UPC code, there's a statement that says this is distilled and aged by Four Roses Distillery, LLC, Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. There's also a brief legend of Four Roses, but I'll expand upon that in history. Final thing on the bottle is the neck label that features the roses and established 1888 Authentic. Okay, let's go ahead and open this up. I've had it for a while sitting on my shelf working on this episode, but it does still have the clear shrink wrap. So let's see if I can get this off. Found the perforation. And let's listen for a pop. There we go. As with all spirits on this podcast, I am using a clean Glencairn glass for the tasting. I'm also tasting it neat, which is room temperature, right out of the bottle, no dilution, no ice. So let's go for a pour. In the glass, it's a golden amber, slightly orange color, bourbon color, definitely identify as Whiskey color likely comes from the barrel alone. I don't believe this has caramel color added. Perhaps 
doesn't mention it on the label, so it's probably naturally colored. On the nose, <laughs> when I first uncorked the bottle, I've got that very typical whiskey smell, grains, a weeded sense to it. I'm not sure actually if this has wheat in it. I have to look, it's in my notes. But you, you get a note of grain and a sweetness. At 80 proof, it's not too strong. I can feel the ethanol in my nostrils a bit, but it doesn't burn. Yeah, quite pleasant. And now for a taste. A good way to taste when you drink a spirit is to take a, a sip in and imagine you're rolling a, a ball of the spirit around the center of your tongue, letting it wash around in your mouth. That's a good way to spread the flavors around. On the palate, I get some of the esters of the wood. It's definitely a nice bourbon flavor. I feel some heat from the ethanol as I uh, swish it around. Let's go for another taste. I feel like on the front end, I pick up a bit of corn, but in general, it tastes like bourbon should, which is nice. Yeah, very, very enjoyable. There's, doesn't really have any harsh edges. It's not overly smooth. You definitely can tell you're drinking alcohol, but not in a bad way. Sometimes some spirits are, all the rough edges are kind of polished off, so to speak, through aging or processing or filtering that you don't get that little bit of a bite that I sometimes enjoy. Now for the history. Let's start with the legend. Here's what the label says. Paul Jones Jr., the founder of Four Roses Bourbon, became smitten by a beautiful Southern Belle. He sent a proposal to her, and she replied that if her answer were yes, she would wear a corsage of roses on her gown to the upcoming Grand Ball. When she showed up the night of the ball in her beautiful gown, she wore a corsage of four red roses. He later named the bourbon Four Roses as a symbol of his devout passion for the lovely Belle. Isn't that a touching story? Well, it's a brief sanitized version of the events that, from the perspective of the 21st century, don't sound as wholesome, at least to me. First, we need a brief introduction to the Jones family, upon which this story is based. Paul Jones Jr. and his father, Paul Jones Sr., were in the grocery business in Atlanta, Georgia, and this branched out into the whiskey business, as was the case in some other brand origin stories. Paul Jones Jr. had a brother, Warner Paul, who had joined the Confederate Army during the Civil War. His wife died, then he was killed by a Union soldier, he orphaned three small children who were sent to Atlanta to live with their Uncle Paul Jones Jr. Uncle Paul was described as a bachelor who lived in a hotel. A relative wrote that he never took a house after the boys came to stay, so all three children lived in the hotel till they grew up. Paul Jones Jr. was very close to his father, and the two men were known to take their meals together. In 1877, Paul Jones Sr. died. 
Junior continued to run and expand the family business, with whiskey sales making up a large part of the enterprise. He was known as a prominent citizen with immense political influence, but even this failed to hold back the prohibitionists, who succeeded in 1883 in getting Georgia to pass statewide prohibition of alcohol. So, in 1883, Paul Jones Jr. relocated to Louisville, Kentucky, perhaps drawn there by an exposition held in the same year, but he found opportunity in the whiskey business and sent for his three nephews who joined him, taking up residence in the Galt House Hotel. Paul Jones Jr. would die just a dozen years later in 1895 at the age of 55 of Bright's disease, a kidney disease that at the time was untreatable. Obituaries didn't mention a wife, but did mention his nephews. So then, did Paul Jones Jr., the bachelor who lived in hotels with three nephews as wards, really court a southern belle who wore a corsage of roses upon accepting his proposal? It seems unlikely, and the brand has as much as admitted this to be false in the 2013 book, Four Roses, The Return of a Whiskey Legend, offered by Four Roses brand ambassador Al Young, who sadly passed away in 2019. The book contains the reminiscence of Catherine Jones Smith, the granddaughter of one of Warner Paul's orphaned children, Lawrence Laval Jones, who lived with Paul Jones Jr. and ended up playing a prominent role in the Four Roses Company. Lawrence was smitten with the friend of his brother's wife, a woman named Mary Peabody. His granddaughter writes, She at first would pay no attention to the shy, stern, homely man who sought her attentions. However, when my grandfather at last made up his mind to court her, he gave her no peace until the day he won her. He made frequent trips to Columbus to see Mary, each time asking her to marry him. This procedure went on for more than five years. Finally, when he was in Columbus for a large dance, he decided that he would ask her to marry him just once more, and if the answer was no, he would not ask her again. He sent my grandmother a dozen roses, and in it he wrote this card. For over five years, I have asked you to marry me. Tonight, I ask you for the last time. If the answer is yes, wear a corsage of four roses. If it is no, don't wear any. Well, the rest matches the legend. She wore the four roses, and he was so elated that he gave the name to their most popular brand of whiskey. But five years of pursuing a woman who kept telling you no? I mean, no means no. That's it. He shouldn't have hounded and harassed this poor woman, but times, I guess, were different, and the brand skips over all of that, which we now view in a bit of a negative light for the legend printed on the back label. Also, it seems that attributing the naming legend to the founder works a lot better than to the orphan nephew of the founder. But I digress, that's where the name comes from. But there's a tangent I discovered as well I thought I should touch on. The practice of florography, or the language of flowers, is a decidedly ancient practice of attributing meaning to flowers and arrangements allowing senders and receivers clued into the code to pass unspoken messages to each other or say things they couldn't otherwise say aloud. In the Victorian era, there was renewed interest in florography, and some have speculated that the four roses as a grossage 
were an example of this, with four roses signifying acceptance of a proposal, and red was the color of love. This may have some bearing on the legend, but the approximate date of the proposal was around 1888, and Wikipedia tells me that the popularity of fluorography in the United States waned by the 1860s. Nevertheless, it's an interesting tidbit. Alright, back to the timeline, shall we? The bottle's neck label says established 1888. That would be some five years after Paul Jones Jr. moved to Louisville, Kentucky. But this is the date of the trademark where Paul Jones Jr. claimed to have been producing the whiskey and selling it as far back as 1860. Maybe that's when he and his father got into the whiskey business in Atlanta. The Paul Jones Company was founded after the family moved to Louisville and was first listed with an address on the street known as Whiskey Row in 1887. Along with Paul Jones Jr., Lawrence Lavallee Jones, I may be mispronouncing his middle name, it's L-A-V-E-L-L-E, Laval. Anyway, (laughs) Lawrence and his brother Saunders Paul were active in the business and partial owners. Their other brother, the eldest, Warner Paul Jones Jr., was described as sickly and never played an active role in the business. He died in 1889. In around 1894, Paul Jones Jr. made his two nephews equal owners in the company with him. This may have been done to stifle a brewing rebellion, as it was rumored the nephews were unhappy with working with their uncle. The timing proved serendipitous as Junior would die of Bright's disease rather suddenly the following year. The brothers continued to run the whiskey business, growing it through the turn of the century. They were still simply rectifiers, meaning they didn't distill their own whiskey, rather they purchased bulk spirits and blended it to create their brand. Their focus on quality and business acumen led to enough success that they were able to finance the construction of the Paul Jones Building in Louisville, where they moved the firm's operations to in 1907. This was the same time that the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906 became law and was a precursor to the FDA being formed. As part of the Pure Food and Drug Act, there was a national question of what is whiskey? It was defined to be essentially what we know today as straight whiskey or distilled spirits made from fermented grain and aged in charred oak barrels. Most companies, like the Paul Jones Company, who were engaged in rectifying, often blended in neutral grain spirits with the true whiskey. Yet it seems this was not the case for the Joneses, or they quickly pivoted because they sought to assure their customers through advertising in New York that they guaranteed their whiskeys conformed to the pure food laws. By 1909, President Taft handed down what's known as the Taft Decision that put an end to the question of what is whiskey in the United States, and this became the basis of almost all the current regulations for bourbon. Sometime after this, the brothers ended up parting ways. The reasons were seemingly only known to the family, but Lawrence bought his brother Saunders out at a fair price. Saunders moved with his family to New York, where he died in 1916. National prohibition became law in 1919, effectively putting an end to Four Roses. However, in 1922, Lawrence purchased the Frankfurt Distilling Company, 
and with some partners obtained one of only a handful of licenses to sell whiskey for medicinal purposes only. This loophole let doctors prescribe whiskey to patients during prohibition, keeping some legal spirits flowing. The prescribed whiskey was to be drawn from previously produced aging stocks, and that's much of what was purchased when the Frankfurt Distilling Company was acquired. During Prohibition, Four Roses was sold in one-pint bottles that had a number of anti-tamper features added to them, including closures that made them impractical to refill, plus a seal on the bottle and a fiberboard printed outer box emblazoned with the brand name. These measures, followed by extensive advertising post-Prohibition through the Great Depression, helped establish and reinforce the brand. In fact, Four Roses had a large lighted sign in Times Square from 1938 through the end of 1945. The sign can be seen in the background of the famous sailor kissing a nurse photo taken in Times Square during the celebration at the end of World War II if the photo is not cropped at the top. This photo is titled Kissing the War Goodbye and by accounts of the photographer, the sailor didn't so much as ask permission of the woman to kiss her he was simply moving through Times Square, grabbing every female he could find and kissing them all. Lawrence never lived to see the United States enter World War II as he died on October 12, 1941. At this point in time, Four Roses as a brand had been passed to Frankfurt Distilleries Incorporated, that was formed after the purchase of the distillery in 1922. Lawrence was the principal owner of the company upon his death. The heirs who inherited the shares in Frankfurt distilleries were said to be eager to unload them in order to avoid paying taxes, and found a willing buyer in Samuel Bromfman, owner of Joseph E. Seagram's and Sons, Inc. I've touched on Seagram's in prior episodes, but one of the main motivations for Seagram's post-prohibition was to buy up aged whiskey stocks that were produced prior to World War II. During the war, the U.S. government required distillers to produce industrial alcohol for the war effort, and thus beverage alcohol production was greatly diminished. Seeing an opportunity in controlling as much of the precious resource as possible and stretching it through blending, Seagram's was the perfect buyer for the Four Roses brand and Frankfurt Distilleries, which was at the time the fifth largest liquor business in the country. Seagram's completed the purchase of Four Roses in 1943, buying the business for $42 million. In the 1950s, under Sam Bronfman's leadership, Four Roses was changed from a straight bourbon to a blended one through the addition of cheaper neutral grain spirits, thus stretching the stocks of aged whiskey and diminishing the brand. Somewhat curious to me, they kept the straight, unblended version for the growing export markets of Europe and Asia, but the U.S., the home of Four Roses, was denied the true product. Seagram's kept the packaging and branding the same after the transition to a blend, but the liquid product in the bottle was markedly different and loyal drinkers noticed. Sales began to slide shortly thereafter. Through the 1970s and 80s, the Four Roses brand was described as being in shambles in the USA, though the straight bourbon was still sold overseas and well-regarded. It was master distiller Jim Rutledge, who had worked for Seagram's since 1966, that in the mid-1990s, 
convinced Seagram's management to bring the straight bourbon back to the USA, though only in Kentucky initially. It wasn't too much longer, though, for things to really change. Seagram's as a company imploded due to the ill-fated purchase of Universal Studios and other entertainment businesses. Come 2001, the entire beverage alcohol portion of Seagram's was sold off, and their more than 200 brands were distributed amongst global conglomerates, with Diageo ending up with the lion's share. Four Roses, however, landed in the ownership of their Japanese distributor, Kirin Brewery Company Limited. Kirin had partnered with Seagram's as far back as 1972 to sell Four Roses in Japan, and after the dust settled with the sell-off of all the Seagram's brands, Kirin was the best owner for Four Roses. Kirin invested in the brand, and the first thing they did is stopped producing the blended product in the U.S., and even went so far as to buy back unsold product from distributors. After the shelves were cleared, so to speak, they relaunched Four Roses Straight Kentucky Bourbon in the USA in 2002. Two years later, they released their first single barrel bottling, and a small batch followed in 2006. In 2015, master distiller Jim Rutledge retired, and his understudy, Brent Elliott, was appointed master distiller for Four Roses. Brent's signature is on the front label of the bottle I'm tasting. Further growth and investment in the brand followed. In 2015, they began a $55 million distillery expansion that was completed four years later in 2019, allowing for a doubling of production capacity. It was said the distillery had a capacity of 130,000 barrels a year. Brent Elliott was named Master Distiller of the Year by Whiskey Magazine in 2020, and the brand is represented by a range of bourbons, from the standard I'm drinking to small batch and single barrel offerings. Four Roses has risen up the store shelves as well, having survived the neglect under Seagram's ownership to reclaim some of the pre-prohibition prestige it once enjoyed. So now onto how it's made. Well, this is bourbon, and it's probably the most regulated distilled spirit produced in the United States. We had an act of Congress to define it in 1964, Concurrent Resolution on Bourbon. And as such, there can't be a whole heck of a lot of variation from one to the other. That said, distillers have found a lot of freedom within the form, but in general, the way Four Roses is produced will not surprise even the casual drinker of bourbon. The brand does have a distinct process they detail on their website under a heading of Recipe for Distinction. They use two mash bills with five proprietary yeast strains to create ten distinct bourbon recipes. They've created an entire four-letter labeling system they use to define it, but half the code never varies, so it seems they could have just stuck with two digits. Nonetheless, mixing these ten variations provides them with ample new make spirit to go into barrel. The mash bills are labeled either B or E, with B consisting of 60% corn, 35% rye, and 5% barley. Mash Bill E consists of 75% corn, 20% rye, and 5% barley. The yeast strains then impart different flavors to the distillate, and when applied to the rye-heavy Mash Bill B, is said to yield flavors ranging from delicate fruit and rye to rye and baking spice, delicate fruit, 
rye and light floral character, or delicate rye and mint. Like I said, it's rye heavy. The counterpoint is Mash Bill E. This tends to swap out the rye flavor notes for caramel, vanilla, or light delicate grains. Production starts with mashing, which is the process of cooking the milled grains with water. The corn is cooked first, then the temperature is lowered for the introduction of the rye and malted barley. It's the 5% malted barley that kicks off the conversion of the starches to sugars, specifically the enzymes in the barley. After it's all cooled, they pump it into a holding tank known as a fermenter, where one of the five strains of yeast is added. The mash ferments for at least three days, resulting in a crude beer, or wash, at about 8% ABV. Next comes distillation. Four Roses employs a column still for the first pass, yielding a distillate at 66% ABV. It's then distilled a second time in a pot still referred to as a doubler. This is a gentler distillation that cleans up the spirit, yielding a new make at between 69 and 70% ABV. After a quality control step, this new whiskey, referred to as White Dog, is shipped by the tanker truckload to Four Roses Aging Warehouses. Aging is where the spirit mellows out in a new, charred American oak barrel for a minimum of five years, longer than legally required to be called bourbon. The barrels are stored in single-story warehouses, a choice the brand says leads to a gentle, consistent maturing environment with temperature variations of only about 8 degrees Fahrenheit compared to more traditional, multi-story warehouses with much hotter temperatures at the top. Prior to going to barrel, Four Roses lowers the proof with the addition of water to 60% ABV, which is below the legal maximum of 62.5% ABV, I told you bourbon was highly controlled. Bottling is the last step. Barrels are taste tested prior to being selected for a process called dumping, where they disgorge the contents into a stainless steel trough, where the contents are proofed, adjusted to bottling strength, tested, and chill filtered, a process that's at times controversial. It really shouldn't be though. Many bourbons are filtered to remove impurities and chill filtering simply is a more refined process that brings the spirit to between 41 and 50 degrees Fahrenheit, then passes it through a series of filtration membranes with the goal of removing certain larger particles like oils that can cause cloudiness in the spirit when it's chilled. It's said not to affect the flavor, but some drinkers claim they can taste the difference. In general, it's done so the product in glass for the consumer is aesthetically pleasing. Should it be served chilled? And that's all. But depending upon the style of Four Roses bourbon, what goes into the bottle will be a blend of various barrels, or in some cases, if labeled as such, a single barrel. For this tasting, I had the most basic, the brand refers to as an approachable bourbon for everyone. It's case-packed and shipped out to distributors and retailers for consumers to buy. So now on to cocktails and consumption. Drink it any way you like, or use it any recipe that calls for bourbon in the mix, including simply ice, or the minimalist, like myself, only the glass, and you'd enjoy the whiskey neat. So in summary, what do I think of Four Roses bourbon? I'll be honest, this episode took me months to put together. I had a bit of podcast block. 
I have been working on the show notes and the research for this for far too long, but it was summertime and travel and life is busy and I just wasn't really in the zone. But also it was compounded by the fact that I felt I needed to tell the whole story. There's a lot to Four Roses. I read this whole book uh, authored by the uh, brand ambassador Al Young that gave great insight. And then there's websites and you know, all those resources that are listed in show notes. But with a brand that's this old and so well regarded, I felt like I needed to hit all the all the little nooks and crannies. And to be honest, I skipped over a lot as well. You know, but we're already pushing close to a half hour on this episode. Anyway, all that aside, Four Roses Bourbon, you know, it's a solid bet for a straight Kentucky bourbon. There's, you're not going to offend anybody with it. It's a solid player at about a $25 price point for a fifth. You know, you can get into their single barrels if you want to explore different flavors. But if you need a solid bourbon that just want to enjoy, grab a bottle Four Roses. It's got a good story. I like the branding. I like that it made it through prohibition. And, you know, that's good. I like it. So enjoy it. So that's going to do it for this episode of Liquor and Liqueur Connoisseur. I'm your host, Matt Bertrand. Please subscribe and share. Show notes are on liquorandliqueurconnoisseur.com. You can also find the show on your favorite podcast platform. The show is also on social media. I'm primarily active on Instagram. If there's a spirit you'd like to know more about, please do reach out. Let me know. And as always, thank you for listening. <laughs>